I'm Dave Whitaker, and this is Vinyl Snob. If you bring me a a nine-minute dance record, and I've got a full 12-inch record to cut on that, I can cut a nice, big, deep, fat groove, and I can make that pretty loud. At the same time, if you bring me a record that has 24 minutes, you're going to have a much softer-sounding record. That's Ron McMaster, mastering engineer at Capitol Records in Hollywood. What is mastering, and how can it make a better-sounding record? Ron's going to tell us. This is how we buy the vinyl in pellet form. We then pour the vinyl into an extruder. The extruder melts it down to about 280 degrees. Goes into the press with the labels. Presses under about 1,800 pounds of pressure. Takes about 30, 35 seconds to press the record. Then we pay a visit to Rainbow Records to see just how vinyl records are manufactured. That's all coming up. In this episode of Vinyl Snob, we're going to take a look at how records are made. After the writing, recording, and mixing of an album is done, there are two more steps, both of which can have a great impact on the final sound of the LP. Mastering is where it starts. Although it's taken on a lot of different meanings over the years, mastering for vinyl has two roles. The first is a final chance to tweak the sound of the recording, usually done with the producer or artist in attendance. The mastering engineer can reshape the frequencies, adding or removing highs and lows with equalizers, which are basically elaborate bass and treble controls. He can also squeeze the sound with a compressor, or maybe give it a little air with some reverb. While there are a host of tools available, the goal is not to change, but rather to enhance the overall sound. Step 2. Cutting the lacquer master to be used for duplication basically making a one-off record that will become the mother of all the copies. To walk us through this process, we sat down with Ron McMaster at Capitol Records in Hollywood. You've been cutting records since the 1980s and and doing it in the same room since uh, you came to the Capitol building in 86, so you know that little room quite well. It's my second home. Well, tell us a little bit about the room and some of the audio tools you use. The room that I work in now was designed by a man named George Osberger in the early 70s. It's an analog room. I have Neve mastering EQs. I also have the Capital uh, valve compressor that one of our engineers built here. It's it's a lot like a Manly. It's all tube. I don't compress a lot. I'm not a compressor kind of guy, but I like to kind of catch some of the peaks, maybe at a half or one dB, and just kind of help glue the track together sometimes if it needs it. And uh, this is wonderful for that and sounds great. And people just like the warm sound that it kind of does to their music. I'm also very lucky because uh, all I have to do is go down the hall and patch into our uh, real live echo chambers that we have beneath the parking lot at the rear entrance of the Capitol building. They were designed by Les Paul, and they're live echo chambers. There's eight rooms. I don't use them a lot, but I will use them at certain times, and if I need them, it's a, it's a great tool to have. I mean, they're just wonderful sounding. There's times when you need to brighten up something or make an end have a little bit of a decay and kind of add to my tools of devices to use to help make a better record. Now, about your console, it was custom-built, right, back in the 70s? What I have here is a is a designed from Capital. It's a disc-cutting console. I have the same... EQs and equipment on, let's say, both sides of the board. We have an A side of the board and a B side of the board. You run the album down and review all the songs and get all the levels set and 
get the lathe in operation and the head will drop and you're cutting track one. So while track one is going, you're over on the B side of the board setting up your notes that apply to track two. So when track one is done, you fade down and you do a cross fade over. And now you're on the B side of the board. And when that track is recording on the disc, then you're over on the A side of the board again, setting up for the third song. It's constant. You know, the lathe doesn't stop. A lot of people are under the assumption that you can just stop the lathe and start it again on song three or something. But no, when you drop the head, the lathe goes from the time the music starts to the end. They don't make these lays anymore, so we're all kind of relying on parts, and uh, that's kind of the beauty of the internet these days. Now, you referenced the cutting lathe. It sort of looks like a turntable, but instead of playing the grooves back, you are physically cutting grooves into the vinyl. Correct. It's a blank uh, acetate disc. It, you know, there's a lot of math kind of involved because you're figuring out how much program you have, what kind of program you have. Like the other day, I had a record that was kind of difficult to cut because the A side was 24 minutes long and the B side was only 20 minutes long. That 24-minute side, it was loud and compressed, and it had a lot of lows. The longest side always dictates how loud your record's going to be. For example, if you bring me a a nine-minute dance record, and I've got a full 12-inch record to cut on that, I can cut a nice, big, deep, fat groove, and I can make that pretty loud. At the same time, if you bring me a record that has 24 minutes, like the one I had the other day, you're going to have a much softer-sounding record. So while you're setting, you're working on your Neve console and your, your EQs and you're setting up uh, song two while song one is playing. And then to get between song one and song two, you crossfade on the console. At the same time, you're making the space on the record. How do you do that? Well, I bring the fader up and then I've got a button that says spread on it and I I hit that button. I've got it timed with a clock so I know exactly, especially if it's a live record, at 2305, that's when I've got to hit the space button. And what that does, it does not alter the audio program at all. It just advances the carriage of the lathe just a a tiny bit. So the lathe just automatically will move forward a little bit and then right at that point, it'll coincide with the downbeat of the next track. That's where we've marked it. So it's, it's a mechanical thing. So yeah, if I miss a spread or if I grab the wrong button by mistake, if people distract me or something comes up, I've got to recut the side. It's kind of like a live mix. That's why it's very difficult if you get distracted or people come in your room while you're doing something like this. It's just a distraction and you can miss a spread and then you got to do the whole darn thing over. So you're not only wasting time, but you've wasted some money on a lacquer that you can't use. So once you start cutting the master, there's no stopping. It's a live performance, as you said. First note to last? There's only one groove on a record. Once the lathe drops, it's going until you finish and you hit finish and then it turns around and spiraled around a couple of times. That makes what they call a concentric circle and the head lifts and then you're done. You go through and inspect the record to make sure everything looks good. There's no you know, overcuts or kissing grooves that are going to run into each other and cause skipping or anything like that. Everything looks good. Then you put the number in the concentric circle. Then you go to the next side and do the B side. After talking with Ron McMaster at the Capitol Tower in Hollywood about the fine art of mastering vinyl, we got on the 101 freeway and headed to Rainbow Records to see just how vinyl records are made. Rainbow Records is located about 35 minutes north of Hollywood in the valley town of Canoga Park. You might call it LA's Outback. A blend of tan rocky hills and tan stucco office buildings Rainbow Records is housed in one such nondescript industrial building. 
It looks like a countertop showroom or a window blinds manufacturer. This look too weird. Not quite the Disneyland for vinyl nerds facade we were expecting. Rainbow Records. But once in the lobby, with its colored vinyl, marble floor, antique jukebox, and a framed honeycomb cereal box with the monkey's flexi disc on the back, we began to get a serious Willy Wonka vibe. Hi, we're here to see Steve Sheldon. Dave uh, Whitaker with Vinyl Snub. Dave Whitaker? Okay, how is he Steve Sheldon is the general manager and has been with Rainbow since the early 1970s. Today, he oversees a staff of around 100. I'm ready. <laughs> Although he didn't limp out and roll into a perfect somersault handshake, he did have a mysterious all-knowing air as he led us through the hallways and back toward the vinyl factory. So you visited Ron McMaster who cuts lacquers. Um, we get many lacquers from Capitol. So lacquer is an aluminum disc coated with a lacquer material. So when the guy who's going to cut the lacquer, when he gets it, it's just a blank black lacquer. He has a lathe that will then cut the groove into the lacquer. Then this gets shipped to us or to other pressing plants. Um, we spray it with silver to make it conductive electricity because these steps are electroplating. So you have to get an electrical current through them because the lacquer itself is an insulator. It doesn't conduct electricity. So this is a positive. We then make a negative known as the master or father or the positive known as the mother. Um, training a Someone to make a record is, it takes a, quite a long time. Um, we make CDs as well. I can train a person on a CD machine in about three weeks. A good operator takes a good six months because every record you press is different. The groove configuration is different. So you can have, you can have one album which has got 15 minutes of side, heavy bass album which that groove is going to look a lot different than a 22-minute folk record. And they press differently. So you got to know how to adjust the steam, the water, to make a good record. The equipment's one thing, but knowing how to press a record is, is the next step. So the master, the master is important, of course, but the way the record's pressed is just as important. And then we're going to take a walk to the end, and then we'll come back and I'll go through the... Okay. Wow. Um, so this is our print shop. We print all our record labels in-house. So then we cut them out into sets of two, the A and the B side, and then we drill a center hole, and then we die cut them into circles, and then they'll go into an oven. They gotta be warmed up before they go into the press, and they get molded right into the record. People think they're glued on, they're, they're not glued on. They're molded right into the vinyl. And you've been in this facility how long? Uh, we moved here in 2007 from Santa Monica. Lead on. Back here, we recycle all the vinyl that gets trimmed off. So when a record presses, there's excess on the edges and that gets cut off and then we grind that up and use that again. The process starts with the lacquer master at the plating tanks. The tanks resemble large wash tubs or industrial sinks with what looked like bingo balls floating in vats of Drano. But I was never very good at science. And these are Nickel electroplating tanks. Um, so you've got a negative and positive current. 
that bath is full of nickel and the current pulls the nickel to the face of the plate. So that's what these tanks are doing. And I'll show you what happens. Hey Luis, can you uh, split apart? So this is out of the plating tank. Um, Stamper and a mother? Yeah. yeah. So he's separating the two. Before it goes into the tank, we put a chemical on it called dichromate, which allows that the two metals don't adhere to each other. If you don't put the dichromate on, it's gonna come out as one solid piece of metal. Not gonna be able to separate it. This will then be trimmed. It'll be back sanded. It'll be centered. It'll be formed to go on our press, and this is what's gonna press the record. So this is one side of one record. And again, this technology dates back to the 50s. In the same way, yep. As Steve led us toward the pressing floor, one could see this was not the clean room technology of CD manufacturing. A sea of overhead pipes connected to 15 large, noisy presses. Each press had small sections of chain link fencing attached in different places to protect the workers from hot steam and the many moving parts. This is how we buy the vinyl in pellet form. We then pour the vinyl into an extruder. The extruder melts it down to about 280 degrees, comes out the consistency of bubble gum and about the size of a hockey puck. Looks like a hockey puck if it's black. Goes into the press with the labels. Presses under about 1,800 pounds of pressure. First, the die heats up by steam. When it closes, it sits for a couple seconds. The steam valve turns off, the water valve turns on, cools off the record so it can be taken back out. Takes about 30, 35 seconds to press the record. We bought these new in 1976 and 77. The piping is for the water, the steam, and the drain lines. Uh, watch your step. This is amazing. So this is a press. So you got a mold there. You got an A side and a B side. So we mount that stamper on that I showed you that we make. One on the A side, one on the B side. You've got your A and B side label. The vinyl's extruding into that cake cup. That black puck there is the heated vinyl. When it goes into the mold, a center pin comes down and lines up the A and B label. And then it gets pressed. Paper label gets molded right into the vinyl. Whole process, like I said, is about 30 to 35 seconds. Then the record gets carried out by the excess material and goes onto a trimming station and trims off the excess. And then the last one that got trimmed will be delivered. <laughs> wow. The records are still warm when they come out. We keep them on the carts for 24 hours to keep them from uh, warping. So the material that comes out is still pretty hot. And how many records can you press from one lacquer or from one master? So from a stamper, they last from 12 to 1500 is the typical, and then we have to make additional stampers. And is that because every time you press a record, the, the stamper loses a little? Yeah, it loses, yeah. It's going under a lot of pressure and steam and the metal fatigue. Here's the record you just pulled out. They're inspected by hand. When she gets a stack, she'll look at the top one and bottom one more carefully, because if there's a damage, it's going to be between those two. Um, and then she'll spot check to make sure the label got onto the record in the right spot. 
they are put into the sleeves by hand, and then they're put into the jackets by hand. So it's pretty labor intensive. Other than QC, this is a finished record. Steve led us off the pressing room floor and back toward the front of the building and the QC department. Quality control. There in a comfortable office in front of a great stereo and perhaps one of the coolest turntables I've ever seen, we met Felipe. Ooh, you got a fun job. Good. Um, this is Felipe, he's head of our QC and um, he spends most of his time checking, checking test pressings or if customers have an issue, he'll go back and be the one to uh, answer the customer on that. Very cool. Uh, cool. Thanks. 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 All right. Mind if I get a picture? Last stop on the tour was a trip outside to the back of the facility. And then some of the support equipment, got boilers, water towers. We recycle the water. So after it goes through the dye, it's hot, goes into the tower, cools off, and then gets reused. Boilers are create steam, and steam is what heats up the dye. So setting up a record plant takes quite a bit. Steve Sheldon, general manager of Rainbow Records, a vinyl manufacturing facility in Canoga Park, California. Our thanks to Steve and everybody at Rainbow. You know, while the company started turning out commercial LPs in the 1960s, they also have a rich history of pioneering audio recording technology dating back to the 1930s. We'll cover that part of the Rainbow story in a future episode. We recorded this episode of Vinyl Snob in the second week of March 2018. Two weeks ago, we lost a great visionary, Russ Solomon, the founder of Tower Records. He was 92 years old, at home, and slipped away while drinking whiskey and watching the Academy Awards. If you don't know his story, Russ Solomon invented the record store as we know it. In 1941, at the age of 16, he started selling used jukebox records for 10 cents each at his dad's drugstore in Sacramento. By the 1980s, Russ had 30 stores on two continents. Growing up, we hung out at Tower Records. Everybody did. If you were into music, that's where you went. A few years later, I became a Tower Records employee, one of the funnest jobs I've ever had. Never met Russ Solomon myself, but those who did said his enthusiasm was infectious, and everybody wanted to be part of it, whatever it turned out to be. You know, there's a wonderful documentary called All Things Must Pass, Tower Records. It tells the story of how Russ Solomon and Tower Records changed the retail music industry. It's also a great look at how the music industry itself evolved from the 1960s to today. A great video a wonderful piece of music history, and a vinyl snob recommendation. All things must pass. The story of Tower Records and the late, great Russ Solomon. Vinyl Snob is produced at the studios of Post Audio in Sacramento, California. Questions or comments? Love to hear from you. Drop me a note. Dave at VinylSnob.com. Executive producer is Dana Barry. Our theme music was composed by Cameron Robbins. I'm Dave Whitaker. Thanks for listening. <laughs>